Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Dravidi Pasha, an MTSU senior majoring in information systems, has a passion for genealogy. That's why he took part in a project called Places, Perspectives, African-American Community Building in Tennessee, 1860 to 1920, along with representatives of the James E. Walker Library, the Department of Geosciences, and the Center for Historic Preservation. We've spoken with those individuals on a prior program. Now we'll get a student's perspective after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation and Albert Gore Research Center will play vital roles in helping to document the area's LGBTQ history. April 7th, the National Trust for Historic Preservation announced that two organizations, Nashville Sites and Nashville Queer History, are recipients of a $25,000 grant to chronicle the legacy of the LGBTQ community in Nashville and Middle Tennessee. A community partner of the Center for Historic Preservation, Nashville Queer History is a group that strives to research and share the LGBTQ plus history of Nashville and Middle Tennessee. Sarah Calise, an archivist with the Gore Center and founder of Nashville Queer History, said the organization originally began with the LGBTQ plus collections that the Gore Center has acquired since 2015. An MTSU's Collegiate DECA, D-E-C-A, chapter and three of its student members are being recognized for their leadership development activities by the National Professional Development Organization for college and high school students. MTSU was among only 18 collegiate chapters to receive the 2022 Chapter Leadership Passport Diplomat Award. While three students, marketing major C. Olivia Anderson, MBA major Allison Mullins, and freshman music performance and economics major Christina Vongsaharath received the 2022 Individual Leadership Passport Executive Award. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Dravidi, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, how did you become involved with the Places Perspectives Project? It probably was around November of 2020. There's actually a student, a former student and a graduate from the Information Systems undergrad, both undergrad and grad program named Lawrence Mitchell. So Ken Middleton, which is a digital archivist for the Walker Library, he reached out to Lawrence Mitchell. And Lawrence Mitchell referred me to him as far as Ken and the group's interest in uh, West Tennessee which specifically was Fayette County. I think Lawrence told me he was more abound to uh, Tipton County and Northeastern Shelby County than he was more, more so than he was Fayette County. So he kind of referred me to them and they emailed me. And when they emailed me, it automatically sparked my interest. And I, I responded back, Ken Middleton, Susan Knowles and Zeta Law, they all kind of kept in the loop of through the emails. We started and then I brought John Marshall in because John Marshall, Mr. John Marshall of Memphis, Tennessee, has actually been studying Fayette County history since I think as early as 1977. So he's very avid in it. So I had to bring him along because he's like a, a mentor of mine when it comes to genealogy studies. Now he is a uh, judicial magistrate in uh, Shelby County. Can you go into a little bit more detail about his avocation or his hobby as a, a sort of an amateur genealogist? What has he added to your understanding of uh, researching family history. He told me that his grandfather, 
who was also named John Marshall, had a, owned a store in Tipton County, I believe in Mason, Tennessee. And he said that many African-Americans and white residents of the area would frequent the store and just buy different goods that they needed. And he was always curious about how did his grandfather know all these African-American people or, uh, well, persons and families. So he said he kind of wondered, wondered what happened to um, the descendants of families from enslaved times. And he got into his curiosity of, and he's also a student of history and law. He actually did some history on my Thompson branch of the family, which is my grandmother's maiden name. And the Thompsons have been in uh, Fayette County ever since 1837. And he actually got in contact with my mother's first cousin. And this is as early as 20 years of 2003 and 2007, which I was still in high school. So I didn't get into genealogy and studies until 2012. I saw an article that he produced about my fourth grade grandparents, Daniel and Mariah de Graffenry. So the plantation that was in the Keelan area of Fayette County, almost uh, bordering, almost across the county line into Haywood County, that was the de Graffenry plantation. But my family that was under the Graffery Plantation were the Thompsons. So you did have an interest in genealogy before becoming involved in an academic project. What kind of amateur genealogical work had you done on your own before becoming involved with Places Perspectives? Good question, Jenna. I have researched pretty much every single, wait, I'm saying independently researched almost every single branch on my maternal side. My mother's father and mother's side, which both both sides date back to Fayette County to the late 1830s. And some of those lineage branches uh, started in the 1840s or the 1850s when they came from various areas like North South Carolina, Alabama, Kentucky, and even uh, Virginia. So my mother's side, both my mother's grandparents were born in Fayette County, and she was the first generation born in Memphis in the Binghamton community, specifically the Tilden Cove Apartments. And I'm second generation Memphis on my mother's side. My father he was born in the Arkansas Delta and the Osceola, Victoria area of uh, Mississippi County, Arkansas. And both his parents was in the Mississippi Delta. On my mother's side, it's all Fayette County. Fayette County, and it kind of blemished a little bit across the Tipton County line. And we'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dravidi Pasha. He is an MTSU senior majoring in information systems. And as a student, he participated in the Places Perspectives African-American Community Building in Tennessee 
1860 to 1920 project. When you did your amateur genealogical work before you got involved with this uh, academic project, what kind of sources did you use and what kind of techniques and procedures did you use? How did you go about it? <clears throat> the sources that I utilized before entering the project was Ancestry.com's primary, well, actually, primary was oral history, family oral history from any elder that is 50 and above, I would say, 50 and above. I have an elder now that's 98. My grandmother is 92. The elders were my primary sources. I have one grandparent that's living. My other grandparents are deceased. But your grandparents have first cousins, and they have second cousins, and they have siblings. All of those different elders, they count. And you have to further your research. You have to branch out into your grandparents' cousins if your grandparents are not necessarily living. So a lot of people don't understand that notion, but that's what you have to do. Ancestry.com was secondary. And then um, I did a little bit on FamilySearch.org, contacting the Pacific County um, courthouses, chancery courts, circuit courts, the chancery courts and circuit courts of Pacific counties, especially Mississippi, because Mississippi records is not very avid on uh, Ancestry.com like Tennessee is and a few other states. So Mississippi, you have to deal with their vital records office and you have to pay those fees through the little vendor and things like that or whatever. So you have to actually go to Mississippi's central archives in Jackson or the Pacific or the particular archives in each whatever county that you're interested in. Considering how old your eldest elders are, it's remarkable that their memories are still intact. Did you find that to be the case? Yes and no. Some of my elders have dementia. My grandmother has slight dementia, but you have to be patient. Sometimes you have to be on the phone with them for two hours plus. Well, actually, I'm going to say one and a half hours plus. A lot of people try to rush the elders into um, giving them answers, whatever they're trying to get from, what they're, whatever they're trying to extract from them. You have to be patient. I have done um, repeated calls to my elders over uh, over a span of years because sometimes we ask them a question. They might say, oh, baby, I don't know about all that. All this water from the bridge. Well, that's old days. Uh, you have to ask, You should ask my sister before she passed away. And you get those type of responses or whatever. But sometimes when you call again on their birthday or if you call on certain days or whatever like that or at certain hours of the day, you get a different mood from them. You capture a different mood and they actually were able to fortify you better answers. They tell you, baby, call them back this weekend. Whatever. I got a lot going on or whatever like that. And when you call them back that weekend, like they asked you to, they actually had time enough to go through some inner self-discovery and regurgitate and bring back up that, rehash that information that they actually kept back with a lock and key in their brains. It's a very slow process, but it's a very rewarding process. A lot of families keep uh, Bibles from way back when where they have written the names of all the relatives and their relationships to each other in the Bible. Are, are those any of any uh, value to you when you're looking for family answers? They definitely are value, but they didn't serve a purpose in my particular journey because my Pacific family do not have their history written down in Bibles, but I have came across like this is in Nashville. I have a cousin in Nashville. They have their history. They have some of their history written down in a Bible. And then I got some family and out there in Shelby County. They are my grand, my great grandfather's brother's descendants. They have some, some of their history noted in the Bible, but my Pacific family, they do not. Even though I'm aware of that uh, technique with that methodology, it was not a, of a use of me for what I specifically did. Could you give us one or two of the most significant anecdotes about what you've learned about your family without going into every branch of your family tree, but any particular ancestors that stood out to you and you thought were really remarkable or really interesting? So before the project, 
My third great grandfather, Nelson Bowes, was a former slave. The slave owning family came from Bedford County, Virginia. And I actually have a cousin, Dr. Uh, Harvey Wayne Bowes of Nashville. He actually did that particular discovery of where the, uh, the my enslaved Bowes family from. And they spell Bowes, B-O-W-L-E-S. My third great grandfather, Nelson Bowes, he was a former slave. Upon the Union soldiers coming to raid the plantations and to release the slaves, uh, he actually joined the Civil War. He enlisted in the United States Coast Troop 5th Ninth Infantry Regiment, and I believe it was Company D. And it was right there that mustered, they mustered in in LaGrange, Tennessee in 1863. So he, he served in the Civil War, and he enlisted in as a private, and he, he mustered out in 18 January, I think January 31st, 1866, in Memphis at Fort Pickering as a sergeant. A lot of soldiers, when they mustered out, was, was still private. Some of them were made corporals. But my ancestor actually made sergeant. There's a record on ancestor.com where he actually received veteran pension benefits. There's a lady named Kim Murray who is in Shelby County, and she's called the Grave Hunting Mom. She's she's Caucasian. She actually found my my ancestor's wife's tombstone. His wife's tombstone it, it read Harriet Bowes, wife of Nelson Bowes. She was buried in a wooded area outside of established white cemetery and the Hickory Width uh, section of Fayette County. The cemetery is, is named Mount Pleasant. On my ancestor Nelson Bowe's uh, death certificate, he died in 1924. It said that he was buried in Mount Pleasant Cemetery. But I contacted Ms. Murray, and she said there is no black cemetery called Mount Pleasant, not in Fayette County, but there's a white one. And she said, I think when I walked through the cemetery, she said, I believe over the gate, I saw uh, some tombstones standing upright, erected in the woods. She said, let me get back with you. I'm going to go back out there again. She went back out there again. She hopped the gate and she found, I think, about 13 tombstones in the woods. And one of those tombstones was Harriet Bowes. She, she said she rubbed the moss off of it. was Harriet Bowes. But she could not find Nelson Bowes, who we know was buried there because of his 1924 um, death certificate. His wife, who died in 1913, there's no death certificate on her. When I ordered his, his application for veteran pension benefits, the National Archives in, in Washington, on there, he gave the information that she died in 1913. That was the primary resource right there. So when she found the tombstone, the date plus the year 1913 matches what we what I found out from the, his record that I ordered from the National Archives, his uh, veteran pensions application record. And I told Ken and uh, Zeta and Susan about Ms. Carol Murray. So I didn't get out there until September 29th of this past year, 2021. When I went out there, I followed the same instructions that she gave me about how to find that burial grounds. When I went out there, I saw a, a big tombstone across from my great-great-grandmother uh, Harriet. When I found that tombstone, it was moss all up on it. I rubbed it off, whatever. And I, I read it backwards. It said S-E-D-L-O-B. And as I cleared those letters from right to left, whatever, it said Nelson Bowles. So he was actually across from hers. Those other tomb mark, those other tomb uh, stones, I think they need they need to have representation. I mean, there are tombstones of African Americans, and why they're sitting outside the Mount Pleasant uh, White Cemetery, I don't know. But that cemetery is a very old cemetery. Have you contacted the people who maintain the cemetery to see if anything can be done about it? Not yet. I do have the numbers, but not. I do have a number that was actually posted outside the cemetery or whatever, but I haven't called yet. But I will. that's something that we'll work on. We'll take another break right here. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. 
There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. EYH also provides the girls with fun, hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking about researching African-American family history with Dravidi Pasha, who is a senior majoring in information systems and was involved in the Places Perspectives project that was overseen by the James E. Walker Library with help from the Department of Geosciences and the Center for Historic Preservation. Have you talked, Dravidi, with your family members about all the work that you've done pre and post project and what has been their reaction to what you have uncovered? Absolutely. I have been in contact with my family and the loop with my family about all this historical discovery and admiration since the very beginning. And the reason why, because it's about family. You can't do this without going through your family. You cannot do this without your family's reflections involved in it. And they are very excited. Um, some was kind of uh, nervous about what I would find or certain things that they know about their family's private, they was hoping that it wouldn't be discovered. And if it was discovered, what's going to be exposed and to what extent or degree would it be exposed? So those type of things you have to be very compassionate and considered about. When you find things, you have to consort with those recipients or your family, if your family are the recipients about, okay, this is what I found. I'm dealing with you about this, whatever, but how should I reveal this or should I reveal this or how much or in what context should it be revealed. As much as you care about the historical record, you're also concerned about how your relatives feel about the information. What have you learned <laughs> about researching your family history from participating in the Places Perspectives Project that you didn't know before you got involved? Mrs. Zeta Law, she has a skill set in the, GI the GIS and the ArcGIS utilization, uh, geographical information systems. They found several maps in the 1930s, in 1920s and 1930s, of uh, Fayette County, and this these maps include the um, <clears throat> the public school bus routes. It includes churches, schools, and cemeteries. I've never looked at an old map. They they're showing what entities, what structures was erected and established at certain time points in history. So if the map is dated in 1935, whatever knowledge you know about your family, say if you point to a 1935 map, you can see what was there at that time. Because when you look at a 1940 or 1945, 1950 map, whatever, you'll see that some of those churches got closed or you see some things was torn down, demolished, whatever. So to prove, the, the, to have a reference to prove the existence of a certain structure or an entity, entity or whatever, those are concrete resources that you want to refer to. So they introduced that to me, which I'm not gonna say I didn't know how to access the map, but that's something that I did not do before joining this project. So that map that they, um, that they brought in, 
I mean, that that was terrific. It was terrific. And so they would point out certain roles that existed then that does not exist now. And they also, I'm trying to think if they had a property, I think they had a property map as well that showed the owners of certain properties and having the acreage that they actually had in assets. So that was another important thing. Ken Middleton, he brought in, the name of that resource was called the Friendship District Associations of African-American Baptist Churches Annual Reports. And the dates that he found on those was 1891 and 1903. And they listed many, many African-American Baptists. Now that's CME, well, not Methodist churches, but Baptists only. That they mentioned many uh, Southern Baptists, American Baptists, missionary Baptist churches that African-Americans had established in Fayette County, Tipton County, Shelby County, actually across the South. But specifically in, in Fayette County, every church that my family attended, which was several churches out there, they actually listed the name of the pastors and the membership and the amount of um, membership dues and ties and offers that was collected. Those churches that are still existing now, a lot of those churches do not have that history. I contacted those churches and let them know that I got this uh, this documentation from Ken Middleton and what the name of their what the names of their reverends and pastors were, time stamped in 1891 and 1903, respectively. And those churches are Papa Springs Missionary Baptist, Union Hill Missionary Baptist, Mount Sinai Missionary Baptist, Cedar Grove Missionary Baptist, and I think Union Grove Missionary Baptist. Do you have any advice for other college students who perhaps would like to get involved in researching their own family histories? based on your experience? Yes, ma'am, I do. So I would suggest to other young people, well, other college students and including all young people to um, appreciate and enjoy your elders and to interview your elders about their past, their past experiences, their knowledge of the past and their wisdom that they was able to carry from the past to be able to live and sustain in present day and what they are willing to pass to you for you to sustain in, in, in the future. During COVID, we have lost a lot of our elders. And I would say that time does not wait on nobody. That's something that we all know. And a lot of us love our grandparents. A lot of us do anything for our grandparents. But other than just taking your grandparents to the store or calling, checking on them, just doing, going and get their medicine or anything, whatever you do for your grandparents, whatever, talk with your grandparents. Talk with them about the, the, um, the past decades of the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, the 20s, whatever that they're familiar with. And go into details. When I say details, not details as far as like their private things, but details as far as like what did they see? What was their perspective back then? Because your perspective changes as the world changes. So the perspective your grandparents have now in 2022, they wouldn't have had the same perspective in 1972. And they definitely have the same perspective in 1962. And it's not necessarily about race or it's not about racial matters, or whatever. It's just about times was different. Like the technology was not as modern then as it is now. So you actually have to create a lot more than you do now. A lot now we purchase a lot of things. Also, I learned that in the rural areas, when students went to school, a lot of students didn't go to school the entire year. A lot of students would go to school um, in different seasons of the year. And then the other seasons was which when they was out of school, they was actually working in the fields. So a lot, I have found records uh, actually recently through the uh, Fayette County Board of Education. And they have records of where we had, they had students, African-American students specifically, that was 14 years old in the fifth grade, um, who was 12 years old in the second grade. And now it sounds so crazy and off wild to us now. But the thing is, if your competency did not reach a certain level, you was not able, you was not qualified to be passed to the next grade. 
So if you was going to school probably like two months out of a 12 month year or a nine month school season, then you would be behind until you you would be behind and deficient in your education until you actually accumulated enough study hours and things like that and, and coursework, levels of coursework. So that sounds so out of space now, out of the park now about a student being that old or that big in those lower grades, but that's what the reality was. And some students, their education did not exceed beyond the eighth grade. Some of them did not go to a ninth to 12th grade high school. Uh, some of them did not attend ninth to 12th grades at a high school. Okay. Uh, uh, education was kind of like unstandardized. It was kind of like substandardized for African-Americans in rural areas before 1970. And different education laws came out where education became more standard and the notes I left behind became more of a thing. But before 1970, you know, country and down in the South, whatever, your education was limited. And now some students actually um, actually uh, was able to overcome those obstacles and were exceptions to the rules. Some students actually went all to the 12th grade before 1950 and actually went to a HBCU um, school. I have some um, ancestors who went to Tuskegee Lane College. My mother is a graduate of Lemoyne College in Memphis. And I have some um, some elders who actually went to Tennessee State. One was Tennessee A and I Agriculture and Industrial College. The bottom line for young students wanting to get into genealogy is be patient. You can be in it for the long haul because you don't know what kind of obstacles you're going to find in the record keepings of the past. That's true. Assess your elders' details. Some students do not know that their grandparents or even great-grandparents who are deceased now actually graduated from college. And some students are in college and don't even know the history of their ancestors going to college and paving those roads when it was almost unheard of us going to school. So it's a lot to be researched and it's, it's a lot to be assessed. Good note to end on Dravidi Pasha. Thank you for being our guest today on MTSU on the record. Yes, Jenna, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and delight. We'll be right back. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle East-centered MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer a new interdisciplinary minor in Middle East Studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Army ROTC College Program at MTSU prepares students mentally, physically, and emotionally to become leaders and promotes virtues of duty, honor, country. ROTC cadets are involved in all academic disciplines, athletics, and student organizations at MTSU. Full scholarships and tuition assistance are awarded based on merit. All cadets upon graduation will serve their country as second lieutenants either in the Army, Army Reserve, or Army National Guard. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. 
A recent surge in student research is circulating through the MTSU Physics and Astronomy Department, leading to graduate school opportunities and outstanding jobs. Award-winning assistant professor Hannah Terletska shares more about a first-time physics poster session. Research has proven to be a play a very significant role in student preparation and student success. All students who have done research, they perform better in classes, and they, many of them go to graduate schools and uh, top national graduate school programs. So uh, doing research uh, plays an important role in also faculty mentoring and student success overall. Physics department is very serious about research, and we are a very active research department. We have a very diverse field of research, from quantum materials to nanomaterials to semiconductor physics, biophysics, optics, high-energy physics, and even astrophysics. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.